Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpulova Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Marina Zalozna, author of The Politics of Bureaucratic Corruption in Post-Transitional Eastern Europe, published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Marina Zalozne is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Iowa. Her research focuses on informal economies, corruption, and uh, political transformations in non-democratic societies. Marina Zalozne's work has been featured in a number of key sociology and interdisciplinary journals. Uh, Hello, Marina, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Natalia. I'm very excited to be able to talk to you about my book. So, uh, corruption in post-communist countries, and in your case, we are talking about Ukraine and Belarus. So, would you elaborate a little bit on how you understand corruption pertaining to these two countries, and why Ukraine and Belarus? Absolutely. Um, Corruption is a buzzword these days, right? We hear it on television. We um, discuss corruption in dinner table conversations. And like many buzzwords, it has a variety of different meanings. So I think it is quite important to define the terms before we go any further, right? Um, Corruption generally in... um, the legal world and um, in the political world refers to the abuse of power for private gain. Um, however, even that definition is not, not especially narrow, right, and can entail all sorts of different practices. Mm-hmm. For um, the purposes of our conversation, I would like to distinguish between high-level grant corruption that involves people with... Um, significant access, either political or economic access, from corruption as a practice of everyday exchange in which many people around the world participate on a daily basis. Transparency International, which is the global, probably the biggest global watchdog uh, organization that collects data on corruption around the world, suggests that in more than 48 countries around the world, a quarter of the population or more reports paying bribes to public sector officials, right? So basically, street-level bureaucrats, people who provide us with services in our everyday lives, from teachers to tax officials to policemen to um, street level kind of low level politicians that or come in contact with just you know going about their business um, accept payments from ordinary people in exchange for either services that they are required to provide by law or additional extra legal services Um, To give you an example, uh, one might think about paying um, a bureaucrat in a a registration office to receive the documents faster than a usual wait time would um, suggest. Or, um, you know, in the book, I talk specifically about corruption in higher education. So an example of exchanges that I discuss um, are small-scale exchanges between professors and their students uh, that ensure specific grade or um, guarantee continued retention despite, you know, let's say, 
dismal attendance or uh, you know, lack of interest in the subject, and so on and so forth. So this is the public sector corruption, small-scale exchanges is what I focus on in the book. That is not to say that there's not other types of corruption. There's plenty. It's just um, to make a meaningful argument, I wanted to be very clear about the kind of practices that I'm describing. And why Ukraine and Belarus? Uh, well, the choice, uh, so b- both are uh, high corruption countries, right? So Transparency International, that organization I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, ranks them very similarly among a third most corrupt um, countries in the entire world. Um, and they have, the two countries have obviously a shared past of being socialist republics. And as such, they share a legacy of um, informal exchange in the public sector, um, known as blood. Um, however, the two countries have developed really differently after the fall of the Soviet Union. One country, Ukraine, has democratized and has you know, had uh, multiple transitions of power, um, mostly peaceful. Um, so it's, it's classified in the West as new democracy and is generally loved by the West. And uh, even if sometimes it's used as a place to fight proxy war with, with Russia. Well, Belarus, despite its sort of cultural and historical similarities to Ukraine, um, has taken a completely different political trajectory uh, to election of an authoritarian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, in the early 90s. It's still under his leadership and is universally uh, recognized as a uh, a neo-authoritarian regime. So because my interest here lied in the relationship between the political system and informal exchanges in which ordinary people engage, this selection allowed me to um, sort of control for certain things, right? Like look at countries that are generally comparable, linguistically, culturally, in terms of religion, in terms of shared past, but that have developed politically in drastically different ways which allowed me to make an argument about the impact specifically of the political change on the informal economies um, in which people engage in their everyday lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned blood. I think this term will be familiar to everyone who is familiar with the post-Soviet uh, countries. Um, is uh, blood the same as corruption, or are there any uh, profound differences here when we talk about blood and corruption? Right. Um, this is a difficult question. Why? Again, because who defines corruption really depends on, you know, their their own uh, background and whether, you know, they're looking at this, this concept from a legal perspective or cultural perspective or not. So um, if we think about corruption, public sector corruption as unsanctioned informal transactions, that happen outside of the purview of the state, whereby bureaucrats use their access to public organizations to distribute resources in ways that are not consistent with the mission of these organizations, then yes, blood is absolutely aligned with that, right? So uh, for those who don't know, I would like to kind of say maybe a couple of words about what blood is. Mm -hmm. Blood is a term that described a system of 
delayed reciprocity-based exchanges, usually in-kind exchanges that Soviet citizens uh, engaged in to obtain access to goods and services in short supply, right? Under socialism, under the planned economy, um, the distribution of goods, and you know, I'm talking about everyday consumer goods, right? Clothes or um, access to, you know, uh, entertainment like theater tickets or an ability to travel to a health resort. Uh, they've been in short supply because the economy, you know, did not just, you know, because the market was not really operant, uh, the distribution was quite ineffective. And because of that, uh, citizens could not simply go and get the things that they needed to get in exchange for money. Money was effectively obsolete in a lot of cases uh, because there was just not enough stuff to go around. So people developed relationships, long-term relationships, where they supplied each other with whatever goods they had access to by virtue of their own employment, for instance, right? So. If you worked at a hospital, you were able to help somebody get an appointment with a, a, a desired doctor, right? Uh, or skip the queue, um, or get, you know, a better, more comfortable uh, service from a nurse during your stay at the hospital, right? Um, and in exchange for that, somebody who benefits from uh, you sharing your professional access that way might share theirs, right? So, for instance, if they, you know, work in an apparel store, they might be able to, you know, hook you up with a um, desired uh, piece of clothing before it's accessible to the general public and, and sold out immediately. So, is this corruption? Well, it certainly looks like it, right? If we kind of consider corruption outside of cultural context or, you know, any kind of, uh, any kind of context, actually. But if you look at this practice in the context of survival under a, an imperfect system of distribution, you know, in the context of a state that is not able to provide for its citizens then the moral connotations of corruption is something that's um, corrosive, as something that essentially contributes to 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 the negative uh, um, it, it, it contributes to public life negatively. This breaks down, right? Because clearly corruption here is a survival strategy, is something that's not a choice and should not be seen as reflective of any kind of moral, uh, negative moral qualities of people who engage in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it looks like the more we think about corruption, the more difficult it becomes to even identify this concept because there are so many um, subcategories, subtopics that we have to consider. Uh, and I really, um, I'm really intrigued by this kind of um, flip, right, that we can take with this notion of corruption when we look at it on the small scale exchange, right, as survival, right, not as something that, not, not, not as an action that we take to break the law, right, but just to survive. And that's a very interesting uh, point. So if we take this into consideration, what's the root of the small scale corruption uh, in uh, countries such as Ukraine and Belarus? 
in your opinion, according to your research. And I understand that uh, you do emphasize that the scope of your research focuses primarily on um, educational institutions. Absolutely. Um, right. So the book is about universities, uh, primarily. I do talk a little bit about schools, secondary schools and hospitals, but these are what sociologists call shadow cases, right? They're not the primary mm-hmm. primary focus of the book. Um, I got my data by working at two universities in Kiev and two universities in Minsk and by interviewing uh, people who know stuff about corruption, right? Uh, participants in bo- from both sides, so students and their parents, because generally parents are the ones who provide the funding for those exchanges, and professors and administrators are the ones who receive it, as well as uh, a number of analysts and experts, people who think about this professionally. So it is absolutely true that even though corruption today, small-scale corruption today, looks quite different from blood in the Soviet time, uh, for one, money is now in need, right? So while during the Soviet times you could not get things that you wanted to get because of the shortages and consumer deficits, now everything is available in both countries. What people are lacking is money to get it, right? And so now exchanges don't look quite the same. If you have money that's exchanged, you don't need to maintain a social relationship for a long time, right? So mm-hmm. let's say, you know, let's return to the previous example of blood that I gave you before. With blood, you know, let's say you have a friend who has access to um, hospital staff. Um, and if you help them out, you might not need help that they can provide at that specific point in time, right? You are not always looking for help with the hospital accommodations. So you need to maintain the relationship over time so that when the need arises, you have somebody to uh, contact and to get help from. With When money becomes the premium mm-hmm. medium of exchange, this need for relationships over time is no longer quite as dire, right? Money allows for an immediate transaction. Um that's why the contours of the corruption exchanges have changed significantly. At the same time, whenever you talk to people who engage in it, the rationale that they provide quite often is still very similar for the engagement and corruption um, in blood back in the day, that basically they feel that there is no other way to get what they need in the country in which they live currently, mm-hmm. right? So within the higher education, this uh, manifests itself in a variety of different justifications. So for instance, from the perspective of students and parents, uh, a lot uh, a lot of people sort of have this shared sense that unless you pay, you're not going to get into certain universities. Mm-hmm or into certain departments, or you're not going to get a passing grade. Um, Whether or not this is true is a whole different discussion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, In the book, I argue that in some ways, people do not really test this 
assumption, right? Uh, they do not actually try <laughs> to get into university without paying before they conclude that it's impossible, right? Mm-hmm. Usually, it's something that people learn from interacting with others, and they that enact this essentially untested assumption, thereby making it true, right? It's a very um, strong and unfortunate dynamic when it comes to corruption uh, that sometimes nobody actually wants it to be happening. Neither people who receive bribes, neither nor people who give bribes, but they're caught up in this um, ultimately inaccurate idea that there is no other way. Now, besides the sort of feeling like they have to do it because uh, professors expect, there's also other kind of structural constraints that people bring up as an explanation for their bribery behavior. Um, Here we can think about, for instance, that the fact that a lot of the public institutions in countries like Ukraine and Belarus are underfunded, you know, salaries are insufficient, equipment is outdated. Um, it basically, s- citizens feel like they it, it, it's up to them to subsidize the services that are subpar, right? That without giving money under the table, they won't be able to get a good service just because the state is not... Um, is not supporting these public institutions, essentially, right? Um, Yet another kind of justification that connects to the sort of perceived feeling of necessity that I've heard a lot from uh, people who give bribes is that um, the current structure of higher education in the region is um, not conducive to people being able to actually study seriously and focus on their studies seriously, right? A lot of people have to work on the side um, um, and, you know, paying here and there allows them to cut corners and focus on providing for their families. Alternatively, um, there is people who feel that uh, devaluation of higher education has been happening, which is absolutely accurate uh, in in a sense that... um, the higher education degree is absolutely necessary to get any job, right? So that in in, in both Ukraine and Belarus, the percentage of people who who graduate from universities and have have um, a high, high high education degree is extremely pretty much everybody does, right? So it becomes this thing that's kind of like a necessity, as opposed to so the the, the degree itself. Right, the credential becomes a necessity, um, and people justify um, having justify buying it essentially as a way to get around this system that doesn't make sense to them. Right, like so, for instance, they might not be actually interested in being an engineer. Um, all they're interested in is getting the degree and moving on allowing the employer that they want to employ them because now they have that, you know, that they put the check in the box and they got the degree. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, my question is, um, what was the scope of your research in this case? Because, uh, yes, well, like uh, as uh, someone who received uh, some education in Ukraine as well in the 90s, back in the 90s, uh, mm-hmm. some of these descriptions resonate with me. Uh, but uh, I think we should also consider uh, what probably regions we also talk about and what universities and institutions and uh, um, um, other things, uh, what, what, what other things we consider while we uh, make this kind of uh, conclusion. Uh, also, um, like you said, yes, especially for regional local uh, schools, uh, there is a huge problem in terms of um, uh, modern equipment, while uh, in some bigger cities, for example, there are schools which are very well equipped. So I'm, I'm curious about the scope of, of the research and the scope of this uh, conclusions that can be applied like to the whole educational system both in Ukraine and in Belarus absolutely um, uh, yes Natalia thank you for this question because it's actually one of my sort of broader goals mm-hmm. in this book is to emphasize the within country variance in these practices why because corruptions become this sort of term that the international community in recent years has used as a sort of as a measure of morality Mm. and moral standing of some societies uh, relative to others, right? So essentially we have this moral order that's emerged and, you know, countries like Ukraine and Belarus find themselves on the bottom. uh, And because generally the unit of comparison here is countries, one country versus another country, then those that do score high in terms of corruption are in in sort of the public imaginary are perceived as ubiquitously corrupt, right? Like completely corrupt. Everything is corrupt. Mm -hmm. And that is just plainly not true. Mm -hmm. It's not helpful for us to say that in any possible way. It's not helpful because, uh, you know, it creates this moral order that, you know, is just, Ultimately, nothing else but a reflection of international power. You know, when you're well, when you're rich and uh, influential in the international arena, you find yourself in a good position in that order, and it reflects nothing about the people or their ethics or anything like that. Right. The second reason why it's not helpful is because, from a social scientific perspective, we really without taking into consideration the, the rich variance within each country, we're not able to really understand what's going on. We're not able to understand the causes or consequences of informal economic practices like the ones described in my book. So you are absolutely right. There is a lot, especially in Ukraine, and I'm going to mention Belarus a little bit later. In Ukraine, the higher educational sector is fragmented. Uh, it's almost like there is two different worlds, right? There is a world permeated with corruption, and there is a world where corruption is minimal or non-existent. And, you know, immediately, you know, us in the West, we are, the explanation that comes to mind for this fragmentation would be the different quality, right? So we have good non-corrupt universities and bad corrupt universities, and that's absolutely inaccurate. It's two different spheres, two different organizational um, 
environments that operate according to different institutional logics, and within which each of these two sectors, we have high-quality institutions, low-quality institutions, high-prestige institutions, low-prestige institutions. And um, the reason why this fragmentation occurs, according to my argument in the book, is that Ukraine, since the um, breakdown of the Soviet Union, has really had this mixed political and cultural identity, where because of its geopolitical importance to the West, it has been supported by the West significantly, and people have developed, Ukrainian people have developed a certain orientation towards the West. But as we've seen, you know, with the turnover of politicians in Ukraine and uh, political leaders in Ukraine, Ukraine oscillates between pro-Russian and pro-Western ways of life. And it's this turnover that, in my argument, according to my argument, has resulted in the institutionalization of two two different ways for organizations to function Mm -hmm. that coexist. And they don't necessarily compete with each other, right? Mm -hmm. So you can go through a corrupt trajectory through your education and get a job through connections and operate in that world. You also can, you may choose not to do it or you may not be able to do it because you don't have the necessary connections and necessary resources to participate, right? So, for instance, you mentioned the regional schools. A lot of them are both corrupt and non-prestigious. Why? Because they have emerged sort of to satisfy this demand and purchasing diplomas, you know, that everybody has to have a university diploma to to get a job. Um, But then we also have extremely rich and prestigious places that are also very corrupt. Like, you know, think about, um, you know, I'm going to name the schools, but this is not, I just want to emphasize that it's not like I'm revealing a big secret here. Um, In fact, in the book, I analyze uh, public reports about the levels of corruption in these places. And, you know, there's multiple opinion pieces. There's actually corruption ratings, you know. So it's not something that I, I just want to, for listeners who are not familiar, I I want to emphasize that I'm not revealing the, um, I'm not breaching the confidentiality <laughs> of my research subjects, right? Um, so, uh, university, uh, the main university in Ukraine, the uh, you know, Taras Shevchenko National uh, University in Kiev, um, especially some departments within it have emerged as, you know, openly and knowingly very corrupt. Uh, even though they're extremely sought after, the education is good. So, you know, this is just to illustrate the, 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 the distinction between this. this so it's not the same cause for corruption in these two places, um, but ultimately it's the same kind of institutional logic. Um, the same happens on the non-corrupt side. There are some organizations that are very low in terms of corruption because they don't have much demand among students, right? So, you know, some professions are um, not that lucrative. You know, down the road, if you have a degree in 
Ukrainian literature, you might not make that much money. So there's fewer students who apply, especially if the, if the school is in a place that's less attractive to them, you know, um, in a, a more regional center as opposed to in Kiev or Kharkov or Lvov. Um, and it, because there is little demand, and professors simply cannot get anybody to pay, even if they wanted to. I'm not saying that they do want to, but even if they wanted to. So this is sort of considered a, a non-prestigious, uh, provincial kind of non-corrupt university. But you also have, you know, you also have Kiev Mahila Academy that's notoriously uh, free of corruption, even though it's it, it's one of the most prestigious institutions of higher learning in contemporary Ukraine, and it has, uh, you know, it attracts. Uh, faculty from abroad and it, it, it's extremely competitive. So basically the, the, my, the point that I'm trying to make is that there is no one cause for corruption or the absence of corruption. Mm-hmm. Rather, there are multiple causes, but they coalesce in this consistent trajectories that because of the plurality of the political landscape have been able to coexist in contemporary Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And would you tell us a little bit more about your field work in Belarus? And maybe by the end of this section, we can also draw some parallels between uh, uh, corruption in higher educational institutions in Ukraine and in Belarus, how they different or yeah. how they similar. Mm-hmm. So I did my field work in Ukraine before I did my field work mm-hmm. in Belarus. And, uh, you know, I was not prepared what I was going to see <laughs> in Minsk. Um, what I mean by that is that there was no corruption, right, in universities. I remember going to work and being absolutely amazed. Day after day, I was still expecting that I'm going to see something. I just thought it was a little more hidden because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Russian authorities are a little more heavy-handed. Um, there might be a little bit more oversight. But day after day, I saw nothing. My interviews revealed nothing. And I started being less skeptical of this transparency and absence of corruption when I sort of noticed other patterns. One of them, for instance, is that in other types of street-level bureaucracies, like hospitals and secondary schools, there was a lot of it going on. So, you know, I had interviewees, people that I talked to about university corruption who completely rejected not only personal participation, but participation by anybody they know, while they felt completely free talking about engaging in corruption with other places, right? So that to me indicated that it's not that corruption is hidden. It really is just simply not there. So that discovery early on in my fieldwork in Belarus led me to um, sort of to pursue the puzzle about the comparative transparency of universities. And it took me on a historical journey uh, back to the beginning of Lukashenko's term in uh, mid-90s, uh, where there was a period there from about mid-90s to early 2000s, where people who have uh, worked at universities at the time or who have attended universities at the time uh, consistently recognized as uh, the time where corruption was there. 
This was the time when Lukashenko did not care about universities much. Mm-hmm. He is not a scholar or an intellectually oriented person whatsoever. And universities were just simply not on his radar as he was attempting to consolidate his power in Belarus. So there was this really interesting and, from my perspective, really exciting period of um, liberalization and experimentation in Belarusian universities where, you know, they were starting to teach social sciences. They were starting to teach their students to think critically. They were inviting new pedagogical uh, strategies, uh, multimedia in, 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 in the classrooms. And in the absence of strict controls, corruption grew and, um, you know, prospered in the Russian universities at the time. Um, So I would say that during the time, the Russian universities resembled Ukrainian universities now, right? So I'm not saying that corruption was everywhere. There's probably cross-organizational difference, but there was this accommodation of of, of corruption as one mode of dealing with university. Um, But then in early 2000s, things changed politically. Um, In the election of 2001, um, university students really emerged as a um, potentially threatening oppositional force, right? So to Lukashenko, not only did they not vote for him, um, you know, we know that from the independent um, monitors of, of the election, you know, because obviously the official results show them voting for Lukashenko in drones, but that was not the case. Not only did they not support him electorally, they also... Um, organized. They organized in groups outside of the purview of the state. They took to streets sometimes. So basically, this is all happening while places like Ukraine is going through a pro-democratic revolution, right? Well, Georgia has this pro-democratic movement. So at that point in time, Lukashenko realizes that people who are exposed to alternative ways of thinking are not going to like his regime. So what follows is essentially a crackdown on Belarusian universities where um, a number of um, independent, more, more independent institutions with private uh, lines of funding and foreign donors get closed completely. Other Others get, you know, a turnover of personnel or cherry-picked Lukashenko loyalists are appointed with a clear task of making sure that students mobilize for Lukashenko. The uh, organizations are, are, are formed by the state that look like independent organizations of students, you know, to kind of to promote the party line. Uh, the subject of ideology, state ideology is introduced in Belarus as a way to kind of um, you know, essentially is a way to instill propaganda in, into the young Belarusians. And alongside this, what we see is decrease in corruption. Why? Because universities became this closely observed, monitored places with essentially organizational cultures of fear, right? Where people were no longer free to do what they thought was right, but rather they knew that this is a place where the state is looking over them. So basically the point that I'm making is that corruption 
was cleaned out of Belarusian universities, not because of any specific anti-corruption reforms, right? It was a byproduct, ultimately, of a political cleaning campaign and straightened, uh, tightened grip, political grip over, over these organizations, um, which I think is, you know, in combination with, you know, in comparison between Belarus and Ukraine, this suggests a really interesting and kind of unorthodox way of thinking about corruption as a correlate of freedoms, right? It only can exist if there is space for it to exist. And usually we think of corruption as just this sort of unequivocal bad and transparency and cleanliness and accountability as unequivocal good. Well, it's only good if the system itself is good, right? You know, the rule of law is only desirable if the law is fair. The rule by law, that's the case in Lukashenko's Belarus, does not lead to positive transparency. It's not sustainable, right? The second that the controls get less tight, corruption is going to reemerge because it doesn't come from the choices that people make. It's imposed upon and it's based on fear as opposed to kind of democratic, pro-democratic ideals of uh, public responsibility or civic mindedness or other things that we value in liberal democracies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, thank you, Marina. Uh, I think that's a very interesting observation that a corruption-free educational institutions in, in Belarus is uh, a, f- a consequence of actually corrupted political system and political regime. Mm-hmm. So, and it makes me think of that notion of moral corruption that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. Um, I'm not sure if uh, I can formulate my question at this point, but it makes me think about that, like you pointed out, that corruption-free institution in Belarus is still somehow associated with the sense of fear. And the sense of fear is some sort of corruption probably? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. I mean, what we see happening in Belarus is an inverse relationship mm-hmm. between high-level and low-level corruption, right? So, yes, you have mm-hmm. less low-level corruption, but that's because there is capture of the state mm-hmm. and corrupt methods of surveilling the population on top, right? Because ultimately, it's Lukashenko trying to preserve his power mm-hmm. uh, in non-democratic, corrupt ways, right? So. Again, uh, my book is an invitation for um, Western readership primarily to think critically when using this term, Mm -hmm. to think critically about the consequences of corruption. Mm -hmm. Who is it good for? Who is it bad for? And connected to that, to develop policies or promote policies that do not go after people's freedoms, Mm -hmm. but rather actually contribute to democratization. Um, You know, the the fact is that the international community spends billions of dollars annually on on promoting anti-corruption initiatives around the world. And usually the easiest thing to do is to focus on 
small level corruption, mm-hmm. right? Because of course, because top level corruption is hard to get, and then you know countries don't allow access to international organizations that they start going after important people. So it makes sense why. Mm-hmm. However, I think that eradicating small level corruption in countries where high level corruption exists is not only useless, it's actually counterproductive. Mm-hmm. It gets rid of the spaces of freedom that people have in an otherwise unfree society, spaces where they can come together and do something outside of the, of the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I still have this question about measures which can be uh, undertaken to somehow combat the current corruption. So you partially addressed this question uh, just uh, previously, but uh, I'm still curious about uh, those possible measures that you envision could somehow work for Ukraine, for example, or for Belarus. And it looks like these are two different cases, but still. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I guess what one thing that I... Um, I, I my um, comments before suggested was sequencing, right? So that meaning that it's not that we don't want to eradicate low-level corruption. We do for sure. Ideally, it wouldn't exist, but it should come after mm-hmm. the um, measures that are focused on promoting freedom of press, freedom of expression and association, right? Independent judiciary, free elections. Without this thing, we're eradicating low-level corruption is not going to get us anywhere. In fact, it's going to consolidate non-democracy. But if these other measures are effective, and, you know, in Ukraine, in many ways, they are. You know, Ukraine is a a politically free society. Uh, Amazingly so, you know. And um, I I think that in Ukraine, for instance, thinking about small-level corruption is, is not untimely necessarily. So the kind of things that my specific research suggests would be useful, um, I think are primarily the organization level measures. Why? Because corruption, oftentimes the corruption initiatives are targeted either kind of um, on the level of um, entire country or entire institutions, uh, like, you know, for instance, changing the higher educational system, the way it's organized, you know, separating master's degrees from uh, uh, specialist degrees or whatever the kind of that, that, that structural reform of higher education um, might look like. Or they're focused on individual level incentives, right? Sort of increasing salaries or increasing punishment for corruption, stuff like that. But what my work suggests is that the organizations might be, specific individual organizations might be the place where intervention could be extremely um, uh, productive because it's feasible. It's easier to change an organization than it is to change the the whole process of higher education, right? It's also is likely to be more sustainable than dealing with individuals, right? Because organizations carry a culture that, as I show in my Ukrainian case, is self-perpetuating, right? So people participate in this in this kind of behavior based on untested assumptions a lot of the time. So and these untested assumptions, they exist within organization. People come and go and they stay, right? So if we implement organization level 
changes, specifically um, measures that are targeting the transmission of untested assumptions, that can have that can be cheap, effective, and have lasting effects, actually. You know, I mean, what this would look like specifically is hard for me to say, as this is not a mm-hmm. part of my expertise. Uh, but I would invite policymakers to think about the cultural aspects of organizational life, not only about the structural aspects of it, not only about the incentive structures, but, but also about the ideas that are spread. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, sort of embedded within organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually the final question for my interviews is about your current um, uh, research. So is it in any way connected with this project that you completed? Oh, thank you for asking it. Absolutely. Yes. Um, I'm actually working on Russia right now. Uh-huh. And I am, um, my current work is very much related to the idea of public sector corruption as freedom. Mm-hmm. So um, I changed uh, my methodological approach in my more current work is based on surveys. So Mm -hmm. national um, service in 2018, we have implemented, me and my colleagues at the University of Iowa have implemented a a representative national survey in Russia of um, about 2,500 people across all Russian regions in which we ask people about their Uh, corruption behavior, right, giving bribes in different institutional sectors. We also ask them about their political beliefs and behaviors. And most interestingly, they we ask about their egocentric networks. What are egocentric networks? Just personal networks, right? Who do people spend time with? Who they ask for help? What kind of things they talk about with different people in their network? And uh, one thing that we're finding, which I think relates very much to this idea of corruption is... Um, as a space of autonomy. Because Russia is also an oppressive regime where formal civil society does not exist, right? You cannot just go and form an association without a uh, blessing from the state. Um, What we show is that in order to participate in public sector corruption, people develop these networks that actually kind of look like civil society now. (laughs) They outside of their immediate immediate um, circle of interaction. And by doing that, they expose them to new ideas, new ways of thinking. They make people feel um, connected and sharing. They, they make them feel like they share the same goals, right? So this is not perfect civil society by any means. But it creates this archives, right? Like a rudimentary structure that very much looks like a civil society because it exists outside of the purview of the state, because people can talk about things without worrying, because people can exchange resources, provide support um, and ideas that are not controlled by the state. And there's just no other types of networks in Russia that are not controlled by the state in the same way. So yes, thank you for asking me. And I hope to uh, work on that in the future, my my next project is book project is going to be about Russian women mm-hmm. and their involvement in this kind of networks mm-hmm. uh, of assistance exchange 
and support mm-hmm. and the political implications of this yeah. Well, good luck, good luck uh, in, for this for this project. And thank you so much, Marina, for um, uh, speaking with me today and for your research that actually is an invitation to complicate this conversation about corruption uh, theoretically, academically, in, and practically as well. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Natalia. This was such a pleasure. Today I spoke with Marina Zalozna, author of The Politics of Bureaucratic Corruption in Post-Transitional Eastern Europe, published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Thank you for listening uh, to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.